0: Hi, everyone. This is Denise Brown, your host of Your Caregiving Journey, a talk show that helps you as you help family members and friends. Thanks so much for being with me today. It's July 30th. It's just about 10.30 a.m. Central Time, and we're live out of Chicago. In just a few moments, Claire Day, our dementia care expert, is going to join us. She's going to give us an update from the Alzheimer's Association International Conference that happened earlier this month. Just a couple quick updates for you. Caregiving.com turns 23 on August 3rd. So as we do every year, we're having a birthday party. This year, we're using our birthday party to launch some new opportunities for you to connect and share with us. We are starting a first photo virtual chat on the first Friday of every month. Our first photo project inspires us to take a photo of our caregiving day on the first day of every month. And I thought it would be great not only to post our photos, but to get together to talk about our photos. So that's what we're going to do on the first Friday of every month. So the first one is August 2nd. And then we're doing pop-up Karen shares the week of August 5th. We're going to get together virtually for about 20 minutes to connect, to support, to receive. The first 10 minutes, we're going to actually do some reflecting and sharing. And then the second 10 minutes, we're going to do some self-care exercises. And then we're also going to start a community reflection. So on the first Sunday of every month, we're going to get together as a community and reflect. And you can use that reflection in any way that works for you. It could be reflection in prayer. It could be reflection in meditation. It could be reflection in visualization. Whatever it is that brings peace to you, we're going to do that on the first Sunday of every month all those events are posted on caregiving.com so if you go to caregiving.com party you'll see all the events and the opportunity for you to RSVP your seat so that you get a reminder and information about how to connect so again go to caregiving.com look for information about our 23rd birthday celebration and then join us for all that you can everything some one whatever works for you We'd love to connect with you. Okay, so joining me this morning is Claire Day. She's our dementia care expert, and she's also Chief Program Officer with the Alzheimer's Association, Northern California, and Northern Nevada Chapter. Good morning, Claire. Thanks so much for being with us today. Good morning, Denise. Thank you for having me. So earlier this month, you attended the Alzheimer's Association International Conference. Where was it this year?
1: I did. It was in Los Angeles, so it was super close for me. I got to stay on the same time zone for once, which was very nice. Um, The Alzheimer's Association International Conference, or AAIC, as you'll probably hear me referring to it throughout our program today, is the world's largest research conference on dementia, Um, and it it attracts um, more than almost 6,000 scientists from across 75 countries who are all really in this fight to, um, to end um, Alzheimer's and dementia. And it, it, it is definitely um, more than just Alzheimer's research going on. It, it does um, – there's, there's a lot of research now that's starting to bubble up thinking looking at Lewy body and vascular dementia and those sort of cardiovascular risk factors as well as Um, frontotemporal dementia, degeneration, that kind of thing. What was really great about this year's conference, uh, it was probably the highest attended, I think, um, 57 to 5,800 I think was the final number that I heard. But 52% of those were women, um, which is really exciting to see um, women in these leadership roles within science. Um, And I think what's also really exciting is, as we've seen, and you know, you and I have talked over the years about finally since 2011, that sort of increase in Alzheimer's research at the NIH. We're starting to see those younger, new investigators start to bubble up with some of their work now. Um, and it was interesting. I was in one panel presentation with a um, with a speaker who was talking about there was that time in the sort of early 2000s, late 99 to early 2000s, where we lost a decade of Alzheimer's researchers because there really wasn't funding out there for people to want to commit to um, getting into the field of dementia research, and we're really seeing that change um, and starting to see young scientists who have aspirations of wanting to run their own lab and have their own um, research projects, which um, probably wasn't possible 10 or 15 years ago because there just wasn't the research funding to do that. And now that we see that consistently growing every year, it's, it's allowing the field to grow with it. Um, and you really felt that at this year's conference. It was really remarkable.
0: I'm wondering about data sharing. If you remember just a few years ago, there was a huge movement to share data, And not just keep it enclosed and I'm wondering what the impact of that has been
1: yes so I think that one of the things that um, I've learned over the years is that dementia has a much different um, approach and philosophy around data sharing um, Alzheimer's and dementia so and part of that is through something called the Global Alzheimer's Association Interactive Network, or Gain. And Gain is a gateway to providing access to a vast collection of dementia research data. It has sophisticated analytic tools and um, and resources, and it really promotes big data sharing, among federated and global network of data partners who are studying other de- re- uh, Alzheimer's and, de- and dementias. And it does so in a way that allows that those researchers to work together to answer questions um, related to the cause, diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of Alzheimer's disease. And you don't necessarily see that with other disease researchers. I think there's a lot more competition, and, and I, I definitely feel that Listen, there's not a researcher there that doesn't want to have the magic answer, but I I also think that researchers are um, realistic in understanding that there probably won't be one answer to dementia. There's going to be multiple answers. We're learning more and more about reducing risks through cardiovascular um, factors like high blood pressure and diet and exercise and how that might be one piece of this prescription in addition to um, something else that they might find that talks specifically to the um, beta amyloid or the tau protein. So um, I think they're also realistic about the fact that even though everybody wants to find the answer, they just want the answer found. And I think that that's um, something that that the Alzheimer's Association believes in and I think that Alzheimer's and dementia researchers believe in um, because um, it re- they really want to address that need of coordinating and leveraging existing resource or resources um, to advance research further and faster. Um, because we we do have um, such a, it is such a challenge with dementia. I mean, the, the brain is not an easy organ to try and um, do research
0: on. So what was it that you left with that really felt like this is promising?
1: Yeah, so I think there were a couple of things that came out um, in the news. And, and, you know, I was always I talk about this when I do a research presentation, spoiler alert, Cure was not found, and there wasn't a big um, there wasn't a big uh, research um, presentation like we saw last year with um, with the results of the Sprint Mine study and with Ban um, with the 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 Pfizer or um, oh I'm blanking on the two pharmaceutical companies but the Ban two four zero one Which was um, showed the the reversal of amyloid positive in the brain. So, but that was a very small sample. So there wasn't a big like aha moment. But I think there were a couple of things that um, really caught my attention. One is around um, biomarkers. And so biomarkers or biological markers are um, reliable, inexpensive, and non-invasive things that physicians and clinicians can use to di- as a diagnostic tool. And and today, biomarkers are not being used in early detection and diagnosis because there's really not one that's sh- sort of bubbled to the top to say, okay, this is the best biomarker that we can use. So sometimes it's um, a little bit more invasive, like cerebral spinal fluid, which they're using in research, But but there's been more and more push towards finding that Blood biomarker um, and so what there what we what we saw um, at um, ASC was um, a couple of new studies that talked about blood-based biomarkers, which included those hallmarks of the disease that we know amyloid um, and tau. Um, and so these could be a, a really big welcomed um, change to the way we practice and diagnose Alzheimer's. And, and I should state that this is early research, right? So they're not ready to go to market tomorrow, but I think the horizon is, is that much c- closer for us to have a concrete and ineffective blood biomarker to diagnose and detect Alzheimer's disease um, early. Um, why that's important is that we know that families often wait years for to go through the diagnostic process months at the minimum Um, it's cumbersome it's subjective um, and for the most part pet imaging isn't being used Um, and so i think it's um, we need to find alternative ways to um, make sure that we have accessible and easy diagnostic tests so that people are not having to go through so many hoops to get diagnosed and that people have a reason to want to get get diagnosed easy because, you know, we we hear all the time from families that that it was inconclusive, that they said it's probable dementia, but they don't know what kind of dementia. Well, if we created – if we either had some type of pet um, imaging accessible and affordable, which is what the IDEAS trial – um, is aiming to do, which you've, prob- you know, we've talked about on previous calls, where they're working with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to, to find out whether or not pet imaging can be cost-effective and can improve health outcomes, improve health man- medical management. Um, which the the latter part, it's showing all indications of doing. We've got the results of the interim report from Ideas, where it showed that. You know, 65% of patients reported that they had better medical management having received a diagnosis from from the from the PET imaging, and and it should be noted that the people that went through the Ideas trial were those not clear, concrete cases. You know, there are some cases that come in that present very typically, um, and and are, are are a little bit clinically easier for physicians to diagnose, and then there's the ones that really Aren't and they're the ones that are getting misdiagnosed um, or not diagnosed at all. And so, this um, this if if we could get CMS to pay for that, that would be phenomenal. Now the the second part of that study, which is about looking at the costs, those costs haven't been analyzed yet, so we're not sure yet. But we do know that they are investing in potentially a follow-up of that um, trial, which is called Ideas 2.0 or new I, I guess I, new ideas they're calling it, um, which will look at also including younger onset. Um, but for all those other people that aren't clinically difficult, it would be nice to just have a simple blood test um, that would be cost effective and, and, um, and non-invasive for um, patients to really have a clear diagnostic tool. So that was, I think, one of the things that um, really bubbled up for me Um I don't. I, I know I'm like t- talking a mile in a minute because I get so excited by, um, uh, by all of this stuff. So I'll pause for a minute if you wanted to say anything.
0: I think it all sounds awesome. What I love about the blood test is that it's also a tool for the doctors then to say this is what your diagnosis is. Yeah, because we know that doctors aren't diagnosing.
1: Yeah, and I think that that comes with at the same time um, a responsibility for us to prepare physicians better to have that conversation because there are, there are physicians that we know um, do suspect that it's Alzheimer's disease or do have fairly good um, cognitive testing to show that it is Alzheimer's disease and they're still not having that conversation. Um, and so we do need to, um, we need to address that piece as well. And there's lots of projects that are going on around the country that are helping to raise that awareness and prepare physicians to have those conversations because they're certainly not easy conversations to have, but they should, be, they should be being had by a medical professional so that they can answer questions and then um, start to talk about what um, care and support and treatment looks like. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And I would imagine it felt just amazing to be connected to a community where everybody is focused on the same purpose and mission. Yeah,
1: yeah, and you really feel it at AAIC. I think that um, you, you know, it, it it there's there's so much going on. It's it's a it's a full five day conference. It starts on a Sunday, goes till Thursday. Um, it's a lot of information. There are oral sessions and plenary sessions and poster presentations. There's so much great information, and yet you want to soak it all up in that time, even though it's, it's a long day and it starts super early. Like it, it, I, you feel that around, that the people that are attending are really there to see what else is happening and to help potentially carve or shape their work moving forward. Um, I think one of the other um, interesting articles that, or interesting studies that came out was about um, Alzheimer's risk progression and resilience that differs by sex. Um, and, you know, the, we know that the majority of, of people living with Alzheimer's are women, um, and we're starting to really dig down deep into a little bit more of why that is. For, for decades we've just said, well, women live longer and age is the biggest risk factor. But there's more and more research now being done to actually identify whether or not that is the true cause, or whether it's, um, you know, more of those biological explanations for the differences between men and women that are accounting for why more um, why, why more women are being diagnosed. And so there was a study of um, over a thousand people that found women's brains have better. Um, glucose or sugar met, uh, metabolism than men do, which suggests a biological possibility for why women um, are performing better on memory tests, um, even at the same levels of amyloid as men. So it's also looking at whether or not those, how we're diagnosing people, men versus women. Um, if, if women are performing better and, and be, the sort of, um, the These studies were showing things like um you know that that um women need to be um working you know stay, staying working and and physically moving their their brains more to make sure that um uh, there and clearly i'm not moving my brain well this morning but it talked about um, <laughs> women who work longer and um, and work have better resilience to alzheimer's disease and um it may have some relationship to this um to to how we're processing glucose in the brain um and how our how our, how active our brains are staying um and so um we're sort of kind of getting some clearer pictures of that, and so they've been able to fund um, 14 projects that are looking at the differences between um, women and men to really kind of try and answer some of those questions. Um, there's, there's lots of um, really cool stuff that's being done like that that we don't sort of hear about a lot in the news. Um, and I think the other pieces that they're looking at that I got really excited as, there's more and more research that's coming out to support um, that heart-brain um, health connection and how we really need to be what's good for the brain, heart is good for the brain, and, and the, the benefits, the cognitive benefits are starting to become clearer when it comes to um, exercise, diet, and nutrition. And of course, you know, we've, you've heard me talk about the US Pointer Study, which is launching across the country to put all of those things together, similar to what happened in Finland several years ago. Um, and, and there's been more and more of these singular studies on looking at diet, exercise, sleep, all of those, those modifiable risk factors um, that we can do something about today. And, and we know that that's not going to be the only answer, and so it's really important that we keep that other research going. But if we could delay onset by even just five years, the amount of people that would, um, the, the, the cost analysis and then the people that would not um, develop the dementia symptoms, um, could be drastically reduced um, by just delaying onsets or or you know slowing that risk reduction, so we're really starting to see the need to make sure that we're talking about good heart health and brain health the same way. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, that sprint mind study from last year is really worth repeating that people that maintain good blood pressure of one hundred and twenty systolic or lower um, had uh, about a 17% less risk of, re- of developing mild cognitive impairment. And when they looked at mild cognitive impairment and dementia together, it was almost 20%. Um, and what's really great about that is they're going to continue that study too because they weren't able to attribute a reduction in dementia, but they think that's part of the reason is that they didn't look out far enough. If you think about the progression of dementia, it happens slowly over time. And so if you're not studying it for longer than five to seven years, you may not see the benefits. But if we look beyond those five to seven years, um, will we be able to see a, a statistical significance and reduction of people that develop um, dementia? And that's huge. And so you know, when you think about what can I do today, um, you know, other than eating blueberries and exercising, well, make sure that you're monitoring your blood pressure. And if your blood pressure is high, treat it. Um, and make sure that you're seeing, you know, going to your doctor and, and getting mo- making sure that that blood pressure is un- uh, under control.
0: I remember the blood pressure thing. So when I went to the eye doctor last month, now they take my blood pressure. Oh, It yeah. was at 120. Yeah. It was 121. Perfect. Yeah. So I thought, okay, oh, it's working. It's working. Yeah, that's that's other,
1: I mean I go ahead, sorry.
0: Oh no, go keep going.
1: I was just say that's, that it's it's such an easy thing that any one of us should be doing regardless of our age. Um, and I think that's where we start we're starting to see that shift of talking about brain health and just overall health together. And we've never thought about brain health. We've just we've talked about keeping our bodies healthy, but we've never thought about what that means specifically for our brain and what it means to lead a a brain-healthy lifestyle. And I think we're starting to get the evidence now, and evidence is a really important thing, right? We didn't have it before. And now we have all this evidence that shows there are things that we can do
0: that make our brains function better or
1: stay healthier.
0: Something else that I've been doing is what they call that intermittent fasting, where you wait a certain Mm. period of hours between dinner and breakfast. Because it seemed to impact our cholesterol, and I thought I read that it impacts our risk for dementia because we're not eating as much in essence hmm. yeah, I'm not as familiar with that one,
1: but I know that there have been you know when you think about um when you when you think about if it's a, it's if it's if it's decreasing your cholesterol, then it's got to be good for your brain mm. health as well. And I, I, I just right. wanna say, because I didn't say this before, I think it's really important to mention that, we also know you can do all these things and be the healthiest heart per- healthy person and still develop Alzheimer's disease. So we're in, we are in no way saying that these things will stop you from getting dementia. But what we do know is that they might reduce, they will reduce your risk of developing dementia And right now, that's all we've got. So let's do what we can to decrease our risks while those amazing scientists that I met last week are working on the plaques and the tangles and the tau and the beta amyloid to find out that piece of the puzzle, which is where I started sort of saying, this isn't going to be just one answer. It's going to be a combination of answers.
0: You know what I think would be interesting to talk about next month is, I I want to say this in the right way. A caregiving experience puts us through a lot of stress. And when Mm -hmm. we're stressed, we might not have access to things like eating, right, because our stress is so high. Or exercising because we don't have the time or the energy. And I wonder what we can do during a caregiving experience to help us with our own risk factors Even as you might say, and this is not definitive, but a caregiving experience could put us at risk.
1: I think that's a great topic for
0: August. Okay. Was there anything that was missing in the conference this year that you wish they had focused on? Hmm. I mean, there
1: was so much. I don't know that I I even got to a, an eighth of, of it um, from really getting to see all of it. Um, so I don't think there was anything. I mean, obviously, you like the big stories, right? We like the stories that show a clinical trial of a treatment that's working. Uh, so we don't have that. We didn't have that this year. Wow. But we also know that some of those stories in the past, some of those trials in the past, um, have been really successful in small trials, and then when they expand them out, um, they just don't hold up. Um, and, and there's been a lot of those. There's been a lot of clinical trials that have stopped this year. Um, however, you, one thing you don't feel at AAIC is that there are failures, and I think what you see is we've learned from this, it doesn't mean that it's a complete failure. It means that we've learned this, and we need to make a modification in order for us to move forward. And that's where I think a lot of um, the certain the the pharmaceutical treatments are, or the you know the actual therapeutics are are looking at is is what can we learn from um, from some of those clinical trials that stopped earlier this year, and what can we um, do better to ensure that. Um, we have the ability to be successful in the next trial. Um, and I think part of that comes from just basic experience um, and learning. And part of it also um, it comes from, um, um, from the fact that we have this increased funding and awareness and need to do uh, more studies than we've ever done before.
0: How could we We're read more? Started. Of... Absolutely. How could we read more about research that was shared during the conference?
1: Yeah, the best place to go is to alz.org slash AAIC, and you'll get all of the highlighted stories. Um, and and I believe that after the conference, people can actually download the AAIC um, app from their app store on their smartphone and get access to all of the um, um all of the studies that were presented um it's usually not available before the conference but after the conference you can um download um that app um, and I can send you directions to that maybe that will be helpful um that you could put on the website
0: Yeah that'd be awesome cuz I yeah. think we would I I think the the availability of such important information is really a huge asset for us and we should take advantage Absolutely. of that
1: Absolutely just curious, why do you keep going back every year? Um, because it is probably, I think, one of the most important parts of my work is making sure that the community is educated on, on the science of Alzheimer's disease and dementia and as well as the, the evaluated and effective and evidence-based science. There's a lot of stuff out there that claims they have the answer. There's a, there, mm. and, and I will say the FDA has done a really great job this year of cracking down on those, if it seems too good to be true it is, kind of memory boosters and things that are going to reverse Alzheimer's and those types of treatments that are not based in evidence. And, it, and as frustrating as sometimes our FDA process is to get a drug from, from a, a test tube to, to market, from a time perspective, it's, it's about safety, and it's about evidence. And we require both of those things in order for, um, for us to actually put a product out to market to humans, for very good reason. Um, because most of the stuff that seems too good to be true really doesn't have any evidence behind it. And so for me, that's the most important thing that I can bring to our community here, and make sure that from, from I think, is the, the Alzheimer's Association has a responsibility to inform people about evidence-based treatments and what's not evidence-based. And that's why sometimes we take positions on things that don't have a root in evidence as being not tested. We're not saying it's bad. We're just saying it's not tested. So if it hasn't been tested and there's no evidence to show that it's working, then we're not going to, we're not going to, Promote it and tell people about it Because there's too much risk involved And I think there's too much opportunity For people to um, Potentially be taken advantage of And so that's, that's why I keep coming back
0: I love that Claire and the other part about that that's so important Is if you're caring for a family member With dementia chances are Well-meaning friends and family Will share yep. <laughs> Something with
1: you that is oh, Here not just proven do this and a- everything will be fine
0: Exactly. And if you can point to, hey, you know what, the Alzheimer's Association does a lot of research, and they have shown that this is the reality, it can help just. um, Absolutely. I don't know how to say it. It could just help you to maybe silence the people that are always saying, you know what you should do? It just would be so helpful. I love that. Claire, as always, it's a delight to connect with you. Thank you so much. I sent you an email about our August show because we're all set with our topic for next month. Yeah, and keep up the great work. Thank you so much for all you do, Claire. It's just amazing. amazing. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, so much for joining us today. Be sure to stop by caregiving.com. Let us know how you're doing because we do truly love to know. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.